Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I will be in Orange County on February 9th and 10th. I will be in Northern Colorado, uh, specifically Greeley, Colorado, March 5th and March 6th. I'll be in Nashville, March 10th and March 11th. And I will also be in Seattle, Washington, March 15th, Philadelphia, April 30th and May 1st. Please go to centerforfaith.com forward slash events to look up uh, how you can register for these events. If you want to attend one of these talks, I think all of those talks um, have something to do with faith, sexuality, and gender. So please check out centerforfaith.com for more info on those events. My guest for today is a friend that I've gotten to know over the years, Jay Kim. Jay Kim is on uh, pastoral staff at Vintage Faith Church in Santa Cruz. Vintage Faith Church is also where Dan Kimball has served for many, many years. And uh, so you might have heard about the church through uh, reading about or listening to Dan Kimball talk. Um, Jay Kim is one of the main teaching pastors there and is passionate about discipleship and about specifically about how uh, technology relates to Christian discipleship and how we do church. He's the author of a forthcoming book called Analog Church, Why We Need Real People, Places, and Things in the Digital Age. I love the way Jay Kim thinks. He's incredibly humble and wise and pastoral and is very in tune with the intersection between faith and culture and is just an all-around cool dude. So please welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only Jay Kim. with my friend Jay Kim. Uh, as I said in the intro, Jay is a pastor, a writer, a speaker. Um, I, I, I came across you, Jay, I mean, when you when we talked about the Regeneration pro, uh, Project and the podcast yep. and everything, and um, I, I want to I get to that, because what you guys are doing with Regeneration is, I think, amazing, and I want to see 10 more movements <laughs> pop up throughout the nation doing something similar, yeah. but why, why don't you just give us a background of who you are for our audience and... Um, uh, what you're doing now, and then we can kind of go go from there. Maybe talk about your book. Yeah, totally. Well, first of all, thanks, Preston, for having me on. I'm a big fan and um, love the incredible work you've done and are doing. So this is this is a thrill for yeah. me to be well, chatting with man. you. Um, <laughs> yeah, man. I uh, I I'm a you know I'm a husband to my best friend Jenny and dad to two little rambunctious kids. That's probably the first thing. But um, my day job, I uh, I serve and help lead a local church in an eclectic, very post-Christian, very weird place called Santa Cruz, California, a little beach town. Um, that's an incredibly beautiful and strange and challenging place for a variety of reasons. And I help serve and lead at a church called Vintage Faith uh, Church here that was actually launched by um, Dan Campbell, mutual friend of ours. And uh, so, yeah, I, I essentially co-lead the church here with him. And, um, and I also, uh, try to write a little bit. And so that, that's part of our conversation today. Um, just finished up my first book called Analog Church, which actually was deeply informed by uh, our community here and what I've learned here really? from our people and what it means to be the church in particular in, um, the strange time in which we find ourselves, you know, in the digital age where so much is changing so fast 
and actually redefining for us in ways that we may not even be aware of uh, what it means to be um, not only the church, but what it means to be human and what it means to be together and in community. And so there you go. That's kind of my life. It's good times and yeah, I'm grateful for it. Why don't you give us a, a quick overview of the book? So it's Analog Church, Why We Need Real People, Places, and Things in the Digital Age. Great, great title, by the way. Um, yeah, give us a snapshot of what the book's all about. Yeah, I, you know, I've grown up, uh, my entire life has been lived um, in the Silicon Valley, which is the epicenter of technology, for one, and um, the epicenter of the digital age, right? This is where the decision makers and the creators who have essentially established and launched into the world this sort of new template for human interaction called digital technology. This is where they are primarily. And, you know, they're all over the world, but this is uh, in many ways the epicenter. So I've grown up around it. And as a follower of Jesus and as a... Um, a leader in the local church, I've seen in particular in recent years, uh, the intersection between the rising tide of the values of the digital age and how they are uh, influencing and shaping, deconstructing and reconstructing our ecclesiology. And it's been helpful in some ways and sort of maybe some supplemental ways, but I've been primarily concerned with the ways in which it's been harmful. Um, sort of our unrelenting, I would say often careless and reckless sort of leaning into um, all things digital for the sake of relevance and for the sake of reach and uh, impact and all those things, the language, cliche words that uh, we church leaders so often use. Uh, I, I just don't think, um, at least on a, on a wide scale, I just don't think we've been thoughtful enough about the subtle and maybe even not so subtle ways in which our digital proclivities are deconstructing and undoing what it really means to be the church. So uh, I, I wrote this book to try to address that and to speak to church leaders first and foremost, and just Christians, followers of Jesus at large, um, to help us sort of reconsider and be more thoughtful in our engagement with digital technologies. So you would see the the cons outweighing the pros in terms of the impact of digital technology, technology, digital communication, social media on the church, would you, the cons are way the pros, would you say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, what I'm not trying to say is, Hey, let's become Luddites and, and, you know, get rid of all digital technology. I mean, you and I are chatting right now, (laughs) you know, thousands of miles away because of digital technology and people are listening to this because of digital technology. So, I am a fan and a supporter of digital technologies. I think more so than pitting the two against each other, digital versus non-digital, what I'm interested in is placing all things in their proper place, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm more interested in putting digital technologies in their appropriate place. And I think what's happened often in the local church, and we can get into this in as much or as little detail as you want, but I I think we've misplaced digital. We've put it on a pedestal uh, in unknowing ways often um, where it's no longer helpful uh, and it's, it's actually harmful. Um, so that, that's what I'm trying to get at. I'm not, I'm not saying, Hey, get rid of your phone and your laptop and go live like the Amish, you know? Um, Uh, But I am saying, uh, you know, what are some ways in which we've 
leaned into digital that um, are actually deconstructing for us our understanding of what it means to actually be the church. Can you give us a couple examples of, of where you've seen technology really hinder maybe kingdom advancement or genuine discipleship, some real concrete kind of habits or practices that, that you've seen Christians do? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll, you know, I get into a, a lot of this in a variety of ways in the book, but I'll just give you one that's sort of probably the most, um, uh, I don't know, hot, hot topic, you know, hot button issue when it comes to church leadership. Uh, and, and that would be like the rise of video venues, you know, and video teaching and, uh, online church and that sort of thing. Um, again, it's not monolithic. I'm not saying anything digital sermons online are evil. Uh, but I think what we've seen, uh, in recent years, um, particularly in, in, the mega church movement, but then bleeding from the mega church movement, even into smaller churches, medium sized churches, and even small churches where there is this sort of uh, reckless abandon toward the way we're going to grow. The way we're going to expand is to put our most gifted communicator in as many places simultaneously as possible. So because we have these digital technologies, let's videotape the person. It's not even tape, right? It's like video, digital video, the person, uh, and just put that sermon in as many rooms throughout our city and country and even world for some churches Mm -hmm. as possible and call that the gathered church. And uh, for me, I think, you know, I, I get into this again in the book, but we have to then ask the question, we have to ask all sorts of questions at that point. Like, okay, you know, what is a sermon, for example? Like, in that mode of thinking, a sermon is something you watch. But I would argue a sermon and preaching and the proclamation of the gospel is not something historically that we primarily watched, but it's something primarily that we witnessed. And there is a difference, you know, Um, to witness something is to, in an embodied spatial theological word would be incarnational way, be present with another and a community of people who are experiencing in an embodied way, the reality of that, which is unfolding before you. And I think uh, that's, for example, that's, the sermon at its finest. And yet now in the digital age, what we've rendered the sermon into, what preaching has become in sort of the video venue model is just a 30 minute informational monologue from a really compelling dynamic speaker. And we're losing something there. You know, we're losing the idea that no, 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 the proclamation of the gospel in the get in the midst of the gathered community is a much more embodied, much more dialogical rather than monologue mm-hmm. uh, sort of reality. And we're losing that, and we're not thinking yeah. about it. You know, so that's one example of many examples. I mean, I can get into how this is influencing the way we understand community and scripture, but um, there you go. That's one concrete. <laughs> How is how have your ideas that are in the book reshaped how you guys are doing church over at Vintage? Or does, you, does your church look a little bit different maybe for in terms of how it integrates technology than maybe your average larger church? Yep. Yeah, yeah, totally. What um, are some ways? Yeah, well, for one, we're not a multi-site church, so we don't necessarily, we haven't had to wrestle with that question yet. 
Uh, how are we going to gather people in different locations and um, teach and gather around the word and the bread and the cup and all of those things? We haven't had to deal with that. Um, but we have talked about it. You know, if we ever moved into that model, which is something we've explored, um, we would certainly lean into the development of, uh, and, and we were doing that now regardless, the development of multiple communicators and multiple leaders who can be, again, embodied in that particular geographic location with that particular people to truly lead and guide and serve yeah. and, and pastor them. But I also, I think, you know, a, a more general broad way of sort of differentiating what we're at least trying to do here at Vintage Faith Church in Santa Cruz is if you walk into our church, um, I, I think viscerally, uh, one of the differences you would feel or experience, at least in a, in a worship gathering, I mean, our church is so much more than our Sunday gatherings, but at least in a worship gathering is, um, and these might not be the words you use, but they would be the words I use to describe maybe the difference you might feel in many, I, I don't want to say all or even most, but in so many large to medium-sized evangelical churches today, when you walk in, what you typically experience, in my opinion, is sophistication and spectacle. Yeah. Um, the latest and greatest in technological advancement, whether that's sort of the, the level of video or the lighting mm -hmm. or, you know, the um, tens of thousands of dollars uh, worth of sound system equipment, whatever it is. And I'm not yeah. saying that stuff is bad. I think what you would experience being emphasized here, though, isn't sophistication and spectacle, but rather... Uh, creativity, artistry, and hopefully an invitation to participate. So we gather in uh, 1938 Red Brick Presbyterian building. Um, we have our building, not just our, our sanctuary, but our office space and the coffee shop we have here is the walls are covered in artwork that's been created by people in the life of our community, not, mm. you know, stuff we bought at Target or whatever, but like art pieces that came to life in our worship gatherings from our people. Um, we have, uh, you know, paper cranes that we folded that are flying overhead in our high ceiling sanctuary. And those are prayers that people wrote for, for huh. Santa Cruz that we have. So, it's, you know, symbolically, it's visually, it's a reminder of why we gather and the mission that we're on together. So we try to emphasize those sorts of things, things that feel tangible, uh, spatial, um, embodied, you know, the theological word again is incarnational, things that are in the flesh and real and stuff that you have to show up to see yeah. and experience and feel. So. I mean, all the high production stuff, I mean, does, does that even work anymore? I mean, it, it, it's, it is a little, I mean, and, and if it, if it does work and I guess we could define what, what do we even mean by that? But I don't know when I'm at churches that ha still that kind of still ha have that and put thousands of dollars in, into pulling yeah. that kind of stuff off. I just I don't. It seems a little bit dated to me. Like, yep. uh, or maybe yeah. Santa Cruz, especially since you're on the on the cusp of where culture is headed and everything. Maybe you guys are kind of beyond that now. To where even if you did put tens of thousands of dollars into high production stuff, you know, high quality lights, amazing sound systems, all this stuff, and bells and whistles. I would imagine in your context, it probably doesn't work, right? I mean, no, yeah, it would not work here at all. It would actually here in Santa Cruz, that sort of approach in many ways would feel, um, you know, 
many would be apathetic. They would be unimpressed at right. best. And some, I think, would even be repulsed. And I'm not, you know, that's not hypothetical. Uh, that's stuff we've heard. Even at our church, stuff that we feel like is not high production, there have been some moments where we've done some things in our attempt to lean into creativity where in hindsight we look mm. back and we say, oh, that was a little bit, we were just trying to kind of lean into spectacle a little bit more than we thought. And we heard back from people like, oh, dude, what was that? That just didn't <laughs> feel genuine or authentic. Yeah. And you know, what's really fascinating to me, Preston, is almost, and this is a big thrust for me in, in thinking about these things, it's almost always from uh, younger generations. So yeah. when you ask the question, is it effective anymore? The reality is, you know, I actually heard this from Andy Crouch, you know, um, mm -hmm. he said this fascinating thing. He said, as he thinks about the future of the church and sort of the intersection between digital and the church, he said he still thinks there is a world in the coming years where every city or town will probably have like one big mega church that is still doing the hyper spectacle, crazy yeah. lights and all that thing. But that on the whole, that church will begin gathering sort of a, a really homogenous group of people who, yeah. um, and he would say, and I would agree with him, who aged uh, with that movement. So when I think about reaching younger generations, from my experience, not just in Santa Cruz, but in my conversations and in the research for this book and uh, experience with friends of mine who are younger, former youth ministry students, um, they truly, I think, are looking for something else. And, and the way I would define it is the leaning into digital in our churches and all the spectacle and show, that's a leaning into relevance. We're trying to make our churches look and sound and feel like everything else in the world, like American Idol or whatever, you know. Yeah. And I think younger generations are exhausted and tired by that. Yeah. I think when they take the risk to step into a community of faith, they're not looking for, um, for relevance. They're looking for transcendence. They're looking for something that is viscerally, experientially different than everything else they experience in their digital world, mm -hmm. uh, which is their everyday world. They live on their phones, you know, and everything surrounding them as spectacle, trying to capture their attention. And um, I think in our churches, rather than capturing their attention, we need to try to capture their imagination, which is a different path. It's a different path. So good. Do, do you think, um, just kind of thinking out loud, I mean, you know, we all talk about the, especially younger people addicted to social media and that's their primary community. But at the end of the day, they, they don't like it. Um, yeah. When they're relieved of it, they go to summer camp for a week. They all talk about how <laughs> awesome this is, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's like, but that's how addictions work, right? It's like deep down, yeah. you know, it's destroying you and it's not the real thing. Um, and so do you find, and I, I, people always say younger people. I, I see my people, my parents' age addicted to social, yeah. you know, the second their phone pings, they're, ooh, I got it, you know, like. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I don't, yep. yes, maybe younger people, maybe more, I don't know, but I think this is a human problem, not just an age problem, but. Um, do you find that, um, to your point that this addiction to social media is, is cultivating a deep down longing for something more authentic and real so that if the church could actually cultivate that when they see it and taste it, they immediately are attracted to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's spot on press. And I'm a hundred percent with you on, on all of that, you know, um, 
the MIT professor, Sherry Turkle, she's written a couple of fantastic yeah. books, uh, Alone Together and Reclaiming yeah. Conversation. She digs deep into this stuff in really profound ways. And I love the title of her book, Alone Together. That is the digital age, you know, and, um, I actually think everything you said is spot on. And I think what it leads me to, because, you know, everything we read about like social media and where people are at with it is like so depressing. We're just so, we're more disconnected than ever. And all of that is true. And I think, but, but I think the hopeful thing is what it does for the church. It actually gives us like one of the most, like a tremendous opportunity leading into the future in that the church one should be, must be, and and now we have the opportunity to be um, a transcendent community where we put down our digital devices, where we invite people to come out from hiding behind their digital walls and be human with one another. And that sort of community is like really inconvenient and really hard and it takes time and energy and it's, you know, it's actually jarring for us because the digital age has like rewired um, how we think about human connection. So we, in the digital age, I don't think anybody would argue with me on this, we're like more impatient than ever, mm-hmm. we're shallower than ever, and we're actually more isolated than ever. And so to detox from that stuff is really difficult. So by no means am I saying it's going to be easy, but the church is perfectly positioned and leveraged to consistently over and over again, week after week, day after day, invite people into these human spaces Mm -hmm. where they can connect in the ways that God has designed them to connect in truly incarnational ways. That's really hard work. And we are going to subvert that work the more we as church leaders just lean into digital. So the more we say, you know what, everyone's on Instagram, so let's just put all of our energy on being really present on Instagram. I'm not saying your church shouldn't have an Instagram. Our church has an Instagram. But the way we think about our Instagram and all of our social media is that it is a place to exchange information. Um, but we also believe that the exchange of information is not primary. It's just, it's, it's an initial exchange. What we're really after is the exchange, not of information, but the exchange of presence. Mm-hmm. And that can't happen on social media. Yeah. And so even in the exchange of information, we're inviting people to show up to exchange, not info, but to exchange presence, which is hard. And we admit that. Um, but the invitation is open and it's constant. And I think that's really important for us as church leaders to do, particularly in light of social media. This is, I mean, it seems that churches often are, you know, we always say the church is kind of behind culture, you know, cultures five years ahead and then the church kind of gets onto something and then they kind of follow in suit. And I, I, and again, I don't have a, I, I like a study to go off of or whatever, but just anecdotally, it just seems that the church is kind of blindly following culture. And I mean, it kind of was exactly what you just said. Like culture is so social media focused, which becomes mm-hmm. very polarized and you throw in politics and all that and everything, yep. or just the, the latest and greatest and celebrity driven this and celebrity driven that. And then the, the church seems to have like a baptized version of all that. Yes. Um, but I, I just feel like all that stuff is kind of collapsing in on itself. And we know, you know, anxiety, depression, suicide rates are through the roof yeah. for teenagers. It's been linked to at least, if not caused by social media addiction. 
Mm-hmm. And I, what what a what a great time for the church to be holistically and comprehensively countercultural. Um, yeah. Because at the end of the day, I think people are really longing for that. They're longing for less outrage, more nuanced thoughtfulness, more sustained, embodied, authentic relationships. And when yeah. the church just kind of follows the latest cultural trend, I, I just, I don't know. I, I, and I, I just, okay, here's another question, I guess. Um, in your book or even in your church, do you provide some avenue for d- helping people, like discipleship, in in social media use, um, mm. and I and I let me I guess quickly. I, I mean, I've talked to some really amazing, godly leaders who all kind of say, "Yeah, my teenager totally addicted to social media, and I don't know what to do." You know, and I'm like, "Man, how how did this? How did we get there?" And I, I remember one person saying, "We were never discipled in this. Like, I don't, mm. I, I could lead a church of a thousand, but no one ever taught me how to like." have a parental discipleship conversation with my kids <laughs> on social media. You just kind of blindly all of a sudden woke up one day and my kids on their phone eight hours a day. Yeah. Um, and I think, man, what, I, I don't, I know a few greater needs today than for Christians to have help from church leaders to disciple them in how to live humanly in, in a social media saturated world. It's like the elephant yeah. in the room. We know it's destroying us. We know it's, wrecking havoc on our faith, our attention span, all these things. And yet, yeah. why are we still addicted? Like, why why don't we talk about this all the time at church? If it's kind of yeah. the, this this t- toxicity that's kind of poisoning everything. Yeah, no, totally. I, I'm with you. I, I think, you know, one of the hopeful things for me is getting back to your point, um, this is, it's, it's a bummer in, in one way because it, it's, an, it's another example of what you said earlier, the church sort of catching up to culture rather than leading and yeah. creating culture. But at least the church seems to be recently starting to slowly catch up to what has been happening in culture in recent years, which is a deeper sort of um, assessment of a stepping back and a deeper a more thoughtful assessment of what our digital realities and social media and all this stuff is doing to us. So I, you know, it's been really encouraging for me to, to meet pastors and church leaders recently sort of all over the place who, when I say things like, you know, when I cite sources like Sherry Turkle's books mm-hmm. or Nicholas Carr or Cal Newport or Adam Alter, these, you know, they're not Christian, but they're all sort of diving deep into this idea um, I'm, I'm encouraged by how many church leaders are like, oh, dude, I just read that too. And it's like reshaping the way I think about my own life uh, first and foremost, but also how I serve and lead our church. So we are playing catch up, but I do think that it's at least beginning to happen where there's a growing awareness. Um, for us here at Vintage, you were asking that earlier. Yeah, we've tried to tackle that. So we've offered, uh, and they were really well attended. We offered, um, we've offered uh, classes on going for, for parents and for anybody really, uh, going through Andy Crouch's book, The TechWise yeah. Family. And we had incredible response from that. Huh. And um, for anybody who's read that book, uh, you, you know that that it gets really pragmatic. Andy gets really pragmatic in that book, and uh, about ways to sort of um, create 
boundaries with technology in our homes and with our families. So little things like that. We've done teaching series here. Uh, we did a teaching series here a couple of years ago called Return to Analog, hmm. which in some ways was the genesis of this book for me, but it was getting into some of those ideas like, what does it mean to truly be human in the way God designed us to be human and to be the church the way God designed the church to be in light of yeah. the, the time in which we find ourselves? And so we're trying to do that. And I'm encouraged by the fact that I think more and more churches seem yeah. to be trying to do that as well. Who, who are, yeah, you mentioned some names. I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with Sherry Turkle. Now, her, her Alone Together book is several years old, right? Is it, is it yeah. outdated or has it been updated or? Uh, it hasn't been updated. Yeah, it's several years old. And then she has a more recent book from a couple years ago called Reclaiming Conversation. Okay. Um, but I think Alone Together is broad enough where uh, it, it still has legs today. Okay. I, I cite the book quite a bit. In, in my Be- besides book. Andy Crouch, who are some Christian leaders? Like, what are some other books out there? I mean, I'm, I'm shocked that, you know, when I look around, I mean, y- yours doesn't seem to be crowded out by a bunch of other books no no which is shocking it's like there should be like at least a few dozen books on this topic right now totally um, Totally. besides andy crouch i mean who are the other who are some others that are well here's the thing man i think it's pretty minimal i think we're on the we're sort of the wave is cresting so i think we're going to see more christian leaders riding along these lines but i think and i'm sure there are many out there some out there that i'm not aware of but um, uh, not too many come to mind. I, I would say, you know, Andy Crouch, TechWise Family is is a, is a big one. I, I actually don't think there are really any books that I know of that that deal with, uh, in particular, the digital age and our ecclesiology. Um, okay. the way I'm attempting to do in this book. But some other books that come to mind, you know, you, you, um, our mutual friend, John Mark Comer, who you just yeah. recently spoke with. I love his new book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, uh, which de- delves into some of yeah. this stuff. Um, I know Jefferson Bethke just wrote a book. I don't know how yeah. much he gets into the digital stuff, but it is about, you know, it's called To Hell with the Hustle. It's like fantastic title, yeah, but, yeah. but same, same deal. It's about, you know, slowing down in the midst of our go, go, go world driven by, fueled by social media. Um, I think, I can't recall the title or the author, but there was a book a year or two ago. Um, and I think it's connected to the Gospel Coalition. Some of those guys might have been out on Crossway, but it's about, in particular, our phones and sort of a, a, a gospel perspective on what our smartphones are doing to us. So um, another book that's been really helpful for me, a couple books actually, not super specific on, on the digital age, but they dig into this, some of this stuff and its symptoms and how we can detox from it is um, a book called The Common Rule that came out last year that was really helpful for me. And then uh, our mutual friend Drew Dick um, has this yeah. fantastic book from last year, Your Future Self. Well, yeah. well thank you. Incredible stuff. So, so, so th- those are some of the Christian resources that come to mind. But I'm hopeful that in the coming years, more and more thoughtful yeah. uh, Christian leaders will begin writing along these lines. Yeah. Yeah. It's shocking. I, I, you know, I thought about writing. Oh, this is funny. I, I just thought about this right now. Um. I, way back when I was exploring the possibility of writing on sexuality, mm-hmm. I remember there was like three topics I was thinking about writing on. One was sexuality and one was technology. This is back in probably 2012 or 13 or something. And mm-hmm. I remember Scott McKnight, <laughs> Scott, we're going to throw you under the bus here. <laughs> I mean, he said, he was kind of like, eh, 
Nobody's going to read that. Like, he's like, oh, yeah, of course it's relevant. It needs to be written. But, like, no one's going to want to be read a book about being, you know, shamed into not using social media anymore or something like that. I'm like, what? Yeah. I don't know. But I, I took his advice and ended up writing on sexuality, and here we are today. But um, Yeah. Yeah, Dude, anyway, when I, I just I, side I, note about Scott, he's amazing, like theological hero of mine. When I first sent him the manuscript for Analog Church and uh, requesting it. the forward, no, he didn't <laughs> shred it. What he said, his first response back, again, you know, we love Scott, but his first response back was <laughs> Analog Church. What does that mean? I don't really get it. <laughs> like, all right, man. <laughs> I, if I want an honest opinion, about whatever. I go to Scott. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. Pulls no punches. Yeah. That's awesome. Hey, all right. Let's talk about your context. Okay. So you live in Santa Cruz and you kind of alluded to it earlier, but for people that don't know, I mean, Santa Cruz is like a, a, a slight window into the future. I mean, you guys hmm. are in, a, in just on, on the cusp of where culture is going. Um, t- describe to us some of the unique challenges and let's just say opportunities <laughs> that yep, you have yep. doing ministry in a place like Santa Cruz. Give us a snapshot of that culture. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, for people who don't know, Santa Cruz is a, an eclectic, artsy, spiritual, but not religious beach town um, on the coast of Northern California, just about 30, 30 minutes south of Silicon Valley. So it's really interesting. You know, it's not physically an island, but people call it the island of Santa Cruz mm. because the short little 30-minute drive from like Google, Apple, Facebook takes you into literally like a totally different world. Yeah. And it's really strange. So, you know, Santa Cruz um, is, again, it's really eclectic. It's, uh, it's really artsy. It's... Um, it's super hyper progressive liberal in every way imaginable. Uh, in 2016, you could not drive more than 30 seconds without seeing like, you know, a feel the burn <laughs> poster somewhere. And so that tells you a little bit of the politics of Santa Cruz. I'm not saying, you know, one way or the other, but it just it gives you a picture. And here's what's really, you know, maybe the most important thing based on the question you're asking. Santa Cruz is... Um, highly, again, it's highly spiritual, like everything is spiritualized, but it's also just as highly antagonistic to religion as a whole and um, Christianity very specifically. And that's something we actually feel and experience in a very palpable, tangible, real way on almost a daily basis here at our church. We have a, uh, we have a coffee shop that is a part of our church called the Abbey that's open seven days a week. It's open during our Sunday worship gatherings and it's just, you know, open to the public and it's chock full of uh, like 90% of the people in the Abbey at any given time are not Christian. And, um, but it's connected so, to the church building, right? Or it's on yeah, the property a, and yeah, people aren't only, turned off by that. Totally. No. Yeah. And most people know that it's, it has some connection to the church. Um, it's, it's a ministry of our church. What that does is it, 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 this happens all the time, probably on a monthly basis, we'll get some email or some message on our website asking if the Abbey is connected to um, a homophobic, yeah. uh, bigoted church, you know, and, and sometimes they'll cite things that uh, Dan Kimball wrote like 10 years ago, take it totally out of context and say, look at this, you guys are bigots and we're going to boycott you. And that kind of thing happens all the time. And they all, almost always lead to 
hey, you know, there's a misunderstanding. We, we love you. Let's grab coffee. We love to buy you a cup, cup of coffee. So therein lies both the challenge and the opportunity. You know, we yeah. get to sit with folks who um, have one particular caricature of what it means to be a Christian. And hopefully we are imaging God in a, in a different way without compromising what we believe to be historical Orthodox Christian faith. Yeah. And, and that's a challenge and it's a balancing act and we feel like we're walking on a tightrope all the time, but it's super exciting. And um, most of those you know, challenges, clashes, tensions, do, do the majority surround questions of sexuality? Is that, is that largely what yeah. ends up coming up? I'd, I'd say like 80%. Yeah. Surround sexuality. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Which your work has been, your work has been super helpful actually for us yeah. along those lines and the resources you put out there. Well, yeah, I appreciate that. I, I, you know, it's when I, when I'm thinking of my audience, when I'm writing, speaking, it typically is, you know, not Santa Cruz. Cause I, so I know you guys are in a, in a different um, kind of unique culture than the majority of, of, well, the majority of people that aren't in like a major urban kind of center. I mean, yeah, I just talked to yeah. John Mark a couple hours ago. I mean, he, I, I would imagine Portland's very, very similar to yep. um, to you guys, or even San Francisco, or even some yep. of the bigger cities, East Coast especially. Yeah. Um, how, how so? Have you seen? How do you break through that kind of barrier? Like, um, or can, can you? Have you seen some success where people say, "Oh, you're the homophobic Christians because you're a Christian, therefore you're homophobic"? Whatever. Um, are, are you able to have some conversations and break down some of those those misconceptions? Yeah, I mean, you know, success is hard to measure. I, I think there's a sliding scale. Um, you know, on one hand, it's like uber success would be I have a conversation with someone who thinks we're hateful and bigoted. And by the end of that hour long coffee, they, uh, you know, profess faith in Christ, right? That would sure. be like uber <laughs> success. That has not yet happened. <laughs> However, um, there have been instances where the person walks away from our conversation holding, you know, tightly to their position. They're like, you know, I'm not convinced. I think you're a bigot. I think your church is bigoted. I'm never coming back to the coffee shop. And that, that's tough, but we, um, we, we uh, you know, just try to continue to provide a space of, of love and openness to them while holding true to our convictions. Um, but that's actually rare. I'd say uh, most of the time, and this has been a fascinating sort of learning experience for me, most of the time, um, those conversations are successful in my assessment. What I mean by that is that the person doesn't necessarily, uh, they, they don't walk away convinced that their view is wrong and our view is right or something. But most of the time, the overwhelming majority of the time, um, people walk away from our conversations uh, having let go of the caricature of our church and of Christians as a whole that they walked in with. And I guess the best sort of most succinct way for me to um, describe that is essentially what we're trying to do is help people who have a particular view of who Christians are and who we are as a church you know, they base the view primarily without knowing us, without conversation against this, this gets back to analog. Um, you know, they base it on what they perceive to be our position on a particular matter. And when we get um, face to face and when I can buy someone a cup of coffee and ask them their story and, and show them 
that I care first and foremost about them as a human being and that um, there is primarily the ethos here is love while still holding to our convictions. What, what usually happens is they become convinced not of our position, but they become convinced that our posture is not what they thought it was. Mm. And usually without human interaction, they, the caricature is built on their understanding of our position on a particular topic. And then they just, they assume our posture toward them in the world is driven by that position. And to deconstruct that has been the most, um, beautiful thing for me, those experiences where they realize, you know, I disagree with this church or this person on this topic, but man, their posture is not what I thought it was. They're actually kind and generous and loving. And, um, and I think that's been success to me, you know, that can sort of push them along on their journey of faith, hopefully where they see Jesus and they see his followers in a, in a new light. Um, I think that's a win. That's a kingdom win. So we try to do that as often as possible. Curious in your experience, the ones that are, you know, maybe begin very hostile with all these kind of assumptions about what you guys believe. Um, I'm curious specifically with the sexuality conversation, would most of them be actually like gay or straight? Like are these allies or? It's a, it's a miss. It's a mix. Yeah. It's a mix. I'd say it's probably a 50, 50 mix. Yeah. So Um, it's, it runs the gamut. Yeah. Yeah. And as you know, better than I do, it's, it's, you know, it is truly a gamut. (laughs) So many different, even growing, increasing sort of, uh, identifications. And, um, so that keeps us on our toes too, so that we can be sensitive and informed in our conversations. Um, so yeah, it's a gamut. Yeah. 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 Cool. And so your, your role at the church, uh, you're, you're one of the primary teachers, right? You teach about 30, 40% of the time or? No, I, I, I teach probably 50, 60% oh, wow. of the time. And then Dan Kimball, um, who's an incredible communicator, obviously, yeah. and, and author and church leader. He, um, he teaches, uh, we teach almost the same, but he teaches probably a little bit less than me. And that's by choice and design. He, you know, he, funny enough, he's spoken on, every big stage you can imagine sort of in the evangelical world, but um, teaching, if you ask him, teaching is not actually like his thing. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I do, I do a little bit more teaching than he does about half the time. I've like that. heard that. I've heard that's not his really main life. He would much rather write, right. Or is he yep. more introverted and, and yep. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. He, um, he'd much rather write, put out content yeah. and, uh, sort of, he's an architect. He was actually an architect before he was a church leader and really? he approaches ministry that way. Yeah. His, his greatest joy comes from architecting things, you know? And, uh, so it's yeah. fun to watch him do that. He's incredibly gifted, obviously. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so you, so you said you grew up in the Silicon Valley or yeah. not in Santa yes. Cruz? No, so okay. San Jose and all over San, San Jose, the San Jose area. Um, do, do you have an opinion on, on some of the stuff, the conversations surrounding big tech and s- censorship and what's going on there? I mean, I, I just had this conversation with um, John Mark Comer. I just deleted Twitter off my phone. Um, oh, really? Because, well, I, I check it a lot for news and whatever. Yeah. And John Mark's like, it's not news. It's propaganda. <laughs> like yeah. they're just, yeah, yeah. they're just feeding you stuff to, which I, I kind of knew, but I mean, I'm like, yeah, you're probably right. Why go to Twitter for 
you know, this little echo chamber of a, a perspective, you know, a That's slow right, trickle yeah. into my brain. But um, do you have any thoughts on that from, from, from a kind of inside the beast perspective a, a bit? Um, is that really yeah. a thing? Or are they really um, tr- trying to push a specific agenda point of view or? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not the most informed, but, but from what I've read and, and heard in conversation, um, I would wholeheartedly agree with that last sentiment there. It is not what is happening in Silicon Valley and the stuff that is coming out of this place. Um, and I'm not trying to say every tech company and every person in tech is like insidious or something, Yeah, sure. but generally speaking, there's an agenda. Yeah. And algorithms, machine algorithms that create the sort of echo chambers that you're talking about. So like when you scroll through Twitter or even Instagram, uh, or whatever, um, man, that is, it's not random. You know, when you scroll through Facebook, that's not random. It's not just sort of like an arbitrary order of things by which we see stuff. There are machine algorithms that are highly, highly shockingly sophisticated that are curating a digital experience to an end. You know, there are ends to this and like any business, any company, the end is to make money for an organization or a company. So uh, I, I, I think it's important to be aware of that. You know, that um, I agree with John Mark. Twitter is not news. It's, uh, it's a machine algorithm curated digital experience designed to keep us scrolling and clicking and yeah. refreshing. But wh- um, why, is my, why is my news feed in Twitter, um, is there a reason why it's, completely one-sided like it's all very far left you know um across the board is that is that because they they think i'm on that camp or something or or they're trying to convince me of it or like why why can't i get some just moderate or both and like (laughs) you know cnn and fox news or whatever but you know but no it's it's all like you know, Trump is the antichrist, you know, if he yeah. sneezed, that's an yeah. uh, expression of evil and the earthquake in China was caused by Trump. And, you know, it's just, and it's just exhaust. It's, and it's almost like, and this is what I told John Mark, I think John Mark, or I, you're my third podcast today. Um, but I, it's almost like it's, 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 it's having a reverse effect. Like <laughs> when everything yeah. is so one-sided on anybody to the right, left, center, whatever, it's yeah. like, it almost makes me like sit back and say, well, that can't be true. Like you got to be making some stuff up. And then when I do a little yeah. digging, I'm like, yeah, you kind of fabricated this and twisted that. Yeah. And I yeah. don't know. So, so is that like, is that just, is all Twitter news feeds far left or is it they're trying to, or they think I'm of that camp and that's why I get it or. Yeah. Know. Yeah. Well, again, I'm not, you know, I'm not the go-to source here, but from what I know and, and, and have read and conversations. Yeah. Again, it comes back to the algorithms that are trying to, um, curate your experience in such a way that they can monetize as best as they can. So it's all, from what I understand, it is primarily based on getting you to continue scrolling, continue clicking, continue um, to look, continue to have you come back over and over again. You know, there's fascinating research. John Mark and I actually both cite him. There's a, there's a guy named Tristan Harris who used to be a, a design ethicist at Google, and now he has this organization that gets into the ethics of digital design. And he um, has this fascinating research that he's done where 
even the design of how we refresh things on our smartphones, it's actually connected to psychological research um, that has its origins way back in the early 20th century when they were initially creating slot machines for casinos. So if you think about a slot machine, you know, typically now they're digitized now and a lot of them are buttons. But if you think about a classic slot machine, like in a casino, you walk in, you sit at this machine and what do you do? You pull down on a lever, you let go of the lever, the lever pops back up and then something on the screen or in front of you spins, right? And then the spinning stops and it gives you some sort of variable reward. Well, it's not random that the means by the mechanism by which we um, refresh our screens is to pull down, release the lever, and then there's a spinning little thing, and then something pops up. Maybe it's the red button saying you have a new notification or a new like or a new news story or whatever. That's not random. It's not random that almost every application you have on your smartphone refreshes that way. It's actually based on a psychological research of how the human mind works to get us most addicted. So again, that's an example of the fact that it's not random. There is an agenda, and the ultimate agenda is not to inform us in the deepest, most significant way possible. It's to get us to pull that digital lever again, to see the little spinning wheel, and come back to sit at our digital jackpot casino slot machines over and over. That's the agenda. We just have to be aware of that, you know? So Dude, That um, makes me so uh, angry. Like, what? <laughs> Well, at myself real, and at other like like how did somebody smuggle a crack pipe into my pocket and tell me that's it's exactly good right. for me like wh- how did how did I allow that to happen and how dare them who them pe- yeah huge companies that are making tons of money off me that don't know me from Adam don't care about me are actually mm. causing my humanity not to flourish yeah yeah <laughs> I feel well, so used. I think yeah, I'm throwing away my phone. Taking... I'm getting a flip phone today. <laughs> <I'm serious. laughs> my wife says that like every other day. Um, and she's always like, but Google Maps, how am I going to get around? That's I know, yeah. Thing. And I listen to podcasts while I drive. And, yeah. Totally, totally. Have, have yeah, you heard of no. the, uh, what about the, the light phone? I, I never saw where that yeah. went. Have you heard about that? Yeah, it's still going. I have some Is friends it? who have it. They love it. Yeah, it seems awesome. I wish it wasn't um, so expensive. No, it's pretty pricey. I think in their early phases, so you know, it's pretty yeah. pricey. Hopefully, if they can sort of uh, scale it a little bit more, we need a billion money. dollar philanthropist to like subsidize it. Like, what if 100%. that thing was like twenty bucks a pop or something? Which I understand. I mean, I don't, I don't, I understand how things cost money and whatever, but like, that's just such a good thing for humanity. And, and I think a lot of people would actually get it. Like when I've seen them talk and everything, I see people yep. get excited because they know they're enslaved. Yeah, and, and they yeah. want freedom. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But even without the light phone, even if we can't afford it, you know, I, I love some of the stuff that Andy Crouch says and TechWise family and some of the really practical stuff. It's like there's stuff we can do with our smart devices yeah. right now. Like I love his idea. I think John Mark talks about this in his book as well. Um, you know, we should treat our phones like our kids, those of us who have young kids, meaning we should put our phones to bed before we go to bed and we <laughs> should um, wake up before our phones wake up the way we do with our kids. Like I don't go to bed before my four year old goes to bed. That'd be, you know, disastrous. I don't know what you're doing, you know, and, but we don't do that. Like we go to bed with our phones. 
it's like so many of us just like scrolling and scrolling and refreshing until we fall asleep and then we wake up with our phones in our hands and man that kind of that's just disastrous so there's little things like that like rules of life we can put in place i think that yeah. um be tremendously helpful i think yeah for me I, there's a certain apps i mean tw- twitter's a big one um that might be the only one there yeah i I am kind of an information junkie, so like it, mm. if I'm sitting there in my in my boredom or going to the bathroom or something, I'm like, I want to learn a, a new fact in the in the yeah, two yeah. minutes or whatever, <laughs> you know. Um, so that's that's what's so I don't like, I but I almost want to. If we have to live with this thing, if if we have to live with this crack pipe in our pockets, <laughs> I almost want it to be next to my. You know, people say don't put it in your bedroom, put it downstairs, mm. um, but I do. I don't know. I, and I know Steven Sinek said, just go buy an alarm clock for five bucks. But I don't know. It's just convenient to have my phone with the alarm clock. I listen to podcasts well, you know, while I'm going to sleep sometimes. Um, yeah. I would almost rather have the discipline of having it right there next to my head to wake up and not touch it till noon. That's what John, John Mark says. He doesn't touch his till I think 11 o'clock is when he first checks his phone. I'm like, I, w- I almost want the, the, rather than lock it away so I can't touch it, I almost want to cultivate yeah. the, the habits of looking at it right there and saying, yeah, I'm not going to touch it until 11 or whatever. Um, yeah, I think, I, I think that's where we're trying to go, right. Where we, again, like you said, we don't have to physically lock it or ourselves away yeah. because the pull is so strong. I mean, it's, you know, it's funny you're calling it a crack pipe, but like in reality, no, that's is. when you, that's when you know you've sort of um, really beaten the addiction is like, man, you could see the crack pipe right in front of you. And you're like, you know what? I don't need it, you know? And yeah, so I think that's where we're trying to go. And I just think for every person, we've got to develop steps. Like what are those steps we've got to take to sort of detox from this thing and, and lose our digital addictions? And it's probably going to look differently, you know, for most people, yeah. depending we on just, stage need, of life. And, we need more training. I mean, gosh, again, it's like, if this is such a significant piece of our spiritual formation, then I just think we need to be talking about it a lot more. I mean, I, yeah. I, I you know, I often encourage parents that the, the one, <laughs> if I wrote a book on my failures as a parent, it'd be a multi-volume set. Okay. So um, <laughs> the, the one area that I feel like, Ooh, I'm glad we made this decision is, you know, we have three teenagers, three teenage mm-hmm. girls. And they they have phones, but there's no social media. We we don't allow. Hmm. They, they they do have this one app that's kind of social media ish or whatever, but not real. It's not doesn't have the same kind of. Um, hmm. And I'm like, man, that that if any parent with a preteen pre phone kid asked me one piece of parenting advice, that that would probably be it. Because yeah. once they have it, it's really hard to take it away. And parents that's out there right. listening saying, yeah, I wish I didn't. I, sorry, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I mean, it's really hard to take it away. Probably going to backfire, probably going to push them away relationally from you. If you say no more Instagram, but you can tell a 10 year old, 11 year old, 13 year old, whatever they get the, you know, you can disciple them in, into that. And I just, I, I, I've seen so much more life, lack of depression, anxiety, comparison, all this stuff in in my kids. And specifically because of, of this, they don't, they're, they're free from it. They don't have to battle that. It's really yeah. um, liberating. And, th- and now they, I think at first it was kind of hard. All my friends have Instagram, all this stuff. And, um, 
but now it's like they're kind of like look at it like yeah all my friends are depressed anxious lonely and addicted to their phones yeah. and thank you for <laughs> sparing me from that no that's um, awesome yeah I, I think we have to be especially for parents you know I, i'm a parent of a four and a half year old and a one and a half year old we just have to be aware of how um insidiously addictive these things are and how quickly they become addictive so we you know my wife and i actually our whole family uh, my wife and I and our two kids, we just took a trip um, and there was, a, it was about a five hour flight. This is just a few weeks ago. And we don't give our daughter, our four and a half year old, either of our kids, they, they don't have access um, or any experience with digital devices, hardly ever. Really? We don't let them, yeah, we don't let no them iPad touch to keep phone or an or... iPad. So here's the thing. This was the longest flight we were going to take with our family. We'd never taken a flight this long before. So my wife and I, you know, we're panicking. We're like, how are they going <laughs> to handle a five-hour flight? It's going to be a disaster. So we bought an iPad. We actually didn't own an iPad until a few weeks ago. Bought wow. an iPad. I downloaded a couple of movies for her. And then I downloaded this, like, uh, Dr. Seuss. She loves reading. And so I downloaded this Dr. Seuss library where all the Dr. Seuss books are on there. So um, we're on the flight. And on the flight there and on the flight back, she spent probably an hour on each flight reading Dr. Seuss books. When we got home, it like I literally, I saw my four and a half year old have to detox from an iPad four and a half where she's like for two days, she's just like, I want Dr. Seuss on the iPad. I want Dr. Seuss on the iPad. And it's, you know, it sounds harsh, but it really is that crack crack pipe mentality where it's like, Oh my gosh, like my daughter from just two little flights became addicted. Now, thankfully she's detoxed. She's not asking for it anymore. And we like packed the iPad away and we actually haven't touched it in the last couple of weeks, but um, it's real, man. That's a real thing. You know, it's the design of digital technologies and the the machines by which we access digital. We just have to be aware as parents. Even without social media, my kids are on, they're on their phone, you know, watching this or do they do a lot of photography or pictures or, or just, yeah. Or even YouTube, they do get on YouTube, which yeah. um, can have its own problems. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just that the social component isn't there. Or I guess it could be, but it's not nearly like, yeah, like an right. Instagram or something like that. So, yeah, yeah. yeah man, gosh, parenting in 2020 is not going <laughs> to be hearted. Um, so, again, the, your book, uh, Jay, comes out in March, uh, Analog Church, Why We Need Real People, Places, and Things in the Digital Age. Also, you can find out more about Jay at uh, jkimthinks.com, right? Is that the that's best place it. to find you for speaking, podcasts, and all that? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. I, I, uh, I co-host a podcast, part of the Regeneration Project. You've been a part of that with us. And so all everything I do, our church and sermons and speaking things in the book, it's all right there. So. You still do it with Isaac, I see. That's awesome. I do, yeah. <laughs> Man, he's my partner in crime. I love him. Oh, he's so awesome. I got to have him on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. He's the best. He's, uh, you know, one of my smartest friends. So anything smart I say, 75% chance I just got it from Isaac. <laughs> I love that, that he's a, pa- I, I love it when I hear about pastors that are just incredibly intelligent, widely read, and oh, they're not yeah. sucked away in the academy somewhere. And that's, Isaac that's is just right. such a thoughtful dude. That's right. Yep. And does he still have dreads? That's even better that he's got He dreads. does, yeah. <laughs> that's that's his trademark, you know? I can't imagine him without it, so. <laughs> oh, man. Jay, thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it, man. It uh, Preston, thank you so much. Yeah.